So today we're in part two of this series that I am so excited about. Um, we're calling it David, primarily because I couldn't come up with a better title. And we're studying the life of who would eventually become King David, uh, ancient Israel's greatest king. And as we jump into this story today, we're going to be reminded of something that is relevant to all of us, uh, either in this moment, in this season of your life, uh, or it will certainly be relevant at some point in the future. And here's what we're going to discover, that God's ways are most unappealing and seemingly irrelevant when we are angry, isolated, or afraid. Can you throw that slide up there for me? You're, you're having trouble getting it? Okay, well, we'll get there. And that is this, God's ways, listen to this, because this is the whole mess is going to hang on this one, so track with me. God's ways, the way he does things and the way he wants us to do things, are most unappealing and seemingly irrelevant when we are one of three things, angry, isolated, or afraid. However you see the ways of God functioning in your life, they're most unappealing, seem the most irrelevant, and just seems like, why would anybody even do this? Why would anybody even think this way when we're super angry, when we're isolated, we're alone, or we're lonely, or we're afraid? Because these three conditions that I mentioned, and we've all discovered this, we all know this kind of naturally because of the way our life functions, these three conditions have the potential to undermine the resolve of even the most dedicated, the most devout, the most committed or disciplined person among us. These three conditions cause us to crash through every moral. They have the potential to cause us to crash through every moral, every ethical boundary we set up for ourselves or that God has established for us in his word. These three conditions have the potential to drive us right through the guardrails that we've set up for ourselves relationally, physically, financially, or even professionally. And one of these three, just one, or maybe a combination of all three, are most likely going to be part of the story of your greatest regret. As you look back on your life, if you were to stand up and say, I want to tell you the greatest regret of my life, chances are it was a time when you were super angry and you did something you regret. You were isolated and alone and you did something you regret. Or perhaps you were just afraid and out of that fear, you did something you look back on with regret. And unfortunately, one of those three will probably be a part of your future regret as well, not just past. And the reason is this, when we're part of those conditions, when we're overwhelmed and the emotions associated with any of those, we feel compelled to do something. We've got to fix it. We've got to get out of this mess. You just got to do something. And that's, there's almost this sense of panic, right? I've got to do something to relieve the tension here because I can't stay here. I can't live in this. And the reality is you will do just about anything to escape that. We do the wrong thing, we rely on our instinct, which most often is the wrong thing, and we do what we did maybe the last time this happened, and we just try to repeat that, or we do what we feel like worked before, or just what comes naturally, and as a result of that, things don't get better, things generally get worse, there's not less regret, there's more regret, things aren't less complicated, we make our own lives more complicated, we end up angrier, we end up lonelier, and we end up scareder. Um, and so now let's jump on to the story of David. David had two colossal failures in his life. 
two massive bone-crushing failures that any one of us could say, yeah, that's a doozy. One he's very famous for. That happened in his 50s once he had become king, and that was his episode with Bathsheba. But the one we're going to talk about today takes place when he was in his 20s. He was only 20. Maybe by the time this happens, he was about 22. In fact, David's life we can actually chronicle very, very closely because of all the biblical, Old Testament biblical characters, his life in narrative form is just laid out on the pages of Scripture. And so we actually know how old he was as he went through a lot of these events. But this is the colossal mess up that he's not famous for. This is the big time mistake that most people don't know about uh, if they haven't really studied the word. But I think it's one of the most interesting and one of the most dramatic stories in the whole Bible, certainly in the Old Testament. And so what we have is following the t- defeat of Goliath, when, when we talked about that, if you weren't here last week or you didn't hear last week's message, you should go on the app, the Trilogy app that you could download from the, you know, get it, uh, and watch it to get caught up because there was some great content and great story from David's life that will really help build as we move through this series. But last week we followed him into the Valley of Elah, where he faced Goliath. And after David kills Goliath, he becomes the most famous person in all of Israel. He's 15 years old. 15. And everybody knows his name. They're singing the songs of David. They're writing songs about this 15-year-old boy named David. He's become a legend. Uh, The king realizes, King Saul realizes, that this young man has a lot of potential But suddenly, also, he has a lot of influence and a lot of power. And King Saul was Israel's first king, and he was extraordinarily, extraordinarily insecure. Ridiculously insecure as a leader. So King Saul came up with a plan that might have been a good plan if David hadn't been who David was and didn't have the qualities that David had. But he decided to get David into his family so he could control him. You know, keep... Keep your friends close, keep your enemies even closer. You've heard the phrase. Well, that was Saul's mindset here. So he offers one of his daughters to David in marriage. And David's response is very interesting. He said, I am not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. My family's not a famous family or a rich family, so I don't think I'm worthy. And then there was the fact that he was 15. I don't know if that factored in or not. But anyway, David refuses the king's offer to be the king's son-in-law. And now people are like, Oh my goodness, this kid is absolutely amazing. Who would refuse an offer like that? He could have become royalty in that moment. What a humble kid. So now his popularity has increased even more. So time goes by and Saul is continuing to look for ways to control David. David falls in love with one of King Saul's other daughters named Michael. And they get married. And then he becomes best friends with King Saul's son, Jonathan. And the next thing you know, King Saul realizes this kid is getting into my family on his own. (laughs) And it was a bad idea because he's so powerful, he's so influential, everybody loves David, and King Saul is incredibly saturated with jealousy. Time goes by for about seven years. Throughout these seven years, David cycles through being in King Saul's favor, out of King Saul's favor, in King Saul's favor, out of King Saul's favor. And he just kind of like goes this roller coaster, not because David's changing, but because Saul is like this. And so you never know where you stand. And on one occasion, maybe actually more than one occasion, King Saul decides, I got to get rid of this kid. And I don't want to do it. 
So I'll let the Philistines do it. So he would send David on these impossible missions. And David would come back alive and successful, and the people would love him even more. This is not going well for Saul. And this escalated to the point that King Saul had finally just had enough. I'm done. And he discovers that every time he tries to have David secretly arrested, either his own son, Jonathan, or his own daughter, Michael, who married David, assists him, helps him out of it, helps him to escape, and he continues to slip through King Saul's fingers. And the frustration builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And finally, it all culminates one night at dinner. Dinner with the king was a big deal. Uh, it was the big, dinner was the big meal of the day in ancient times. And so if you sat or ate at the king's table, uh, that was an extraordinary honor for you. And David had typically shown up for dinner, but during these last few turbulent years, David kept missing dinner because he didn't really want to be around Saul all that much. And every once in a while, Saul would say to Jonathan, where's David? And Jonathan would cover for him. You know, well, I think he's out doing this. He's taking care of that. So finally, one night at dinner, the whole family's gathered. It's a big deal. And King Saul loses his mind again. And he just explodes. And here's what the Bible tells us. He says, now get ready for this. This is one of those verses that makes me think maybe we shouldn't give children a Bible. But this is what Saul says, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan, you stupid son of a whore. Literally a perverse and rebellious woman. That's pretty strong. (laughs) And when I read this, I'm thinking, I hope that that perverse and rebellious woman wasn't sitting at the table. I mean, how awkward would that be? Um, that continues, Saul swore, he swore at him. Do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? <laughs> Are you sensing the irony here? As if Saul didn't do the exact same thing. As long as that son of Jesse is alive, and here is the real issue, you'll never be king. Because he saw Jonathan as the next king. Saul is the first king of Israel. Um, He sees his son Jonathan to be the next king, and he wants his legacy to last, to to extend on in perpetuity. Uh, He sees his family as part of the future of Israel. Now go and get him so I can kill him. Well, Jonathan goes and he finds David, and he says, David, you got to leave town, bro. In fact, it's worse than that. you got to leave the country. Get out of here. Because my father is not going to rest until you're arrested and really until you die. He's too threatened by your reputation. He's too threatened by your influence on the people. And so David is 22 years old, and suddenly he's afraid for his life. He's alone. He's been rejected by the man that he's risked his life for over and over and over. He's feeling rejected by the nation that he's risked his life for over and over and over. And in this particular case, he'd done nothing wrong. So he's abandoned, he's angry, and he's afraid. That's a dangerous cocktail. And he did what many of us do when we're abandoned, angry, and afraid. He panicked. He decided to take matters into his own hands. He lost sight of something that it's hard for us to imagine. He lost sight of the fact that God was with him. Because when you read these stories, right, we're reading these stories with a whole lot of hindsight. You know, uh, we're at 30,000 feet. We know how the story ends. Uh, So it's like, why would you do that, David? Come on, man. Just 
stay the course? Why would you make a decision like that? Why would you panic? Uh, why would you run? Why would you abandon your morals? Why would you abandon your ethics? Stick to the plan. And there are people who are probably watching us right now as we struggle with some of these things. The same things, wondering the same thing. Why would you do that? In fact, let's be honest, you can probably look back at a season of your own life. Now that you have some distance, you have some perspective, you've got some time gap there and some context, and you ask yourself, why would I do that? Why would I go there? Why would I say yes to the invitation? Why did I spend that money? Why didn't I just get up and move? Why didn't I just run away? You see, what was going on was real simple, that when you feel abandoned, angry, and afraid, our natural inclination is to panic and to do whatever it takes to get out of there. And that's what David did. So here's what happened. Chapter 21. David went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech the priest. Now I need to explain this for just a minute so you understand what's happening here. In this time of history, Israel did not own that region around the city of Jerusalem. Okay, They did not own the surrounding areas. Uh, and the city of Jerusalem was not part of Israel at the time. So there wasn't really a capital city. There wasn't a temple. So what happened is the epicenter of Jewish worship was wherever the tabernacle was or the Ark of the Covenant because they would move the Ark of the Covenant around and wherever that was, they'd put up the tabernacle. That's where people went to worship. Uh, and that would be moved around from city to city to the safest place within the territory that Israel controlled because it was a fluid situation. It would change. They're like, okay, this is getting a little dicey. Let's move the ark over here, and uh, that's a little safer. We don't want to lose the ark. That can't happen. And at this particular time, it was in a city named Nob, and because the tabernacle was there, the priests were there, and Ahimelech was the high priest at the time. So that's what we're dealing with right now. Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. Why are you alone, he asked. Why is no one with you? Because every time David showed up, you heard David coming before he got there. Because David traveled with a thousand warriors. It was his personal war band that he would ride off into battle with. And everywhere he went, his warriors went with him. And so the fact that David came in unannounced without all of his warriors with him confused Ahimelech and rightfully so. He'd never seen David by himself and suddenly shows up. He's looking a little nervous. He's looking disheveled. He's by himself. And Ahimelech's looking around thinking, okay, what is going on here? And David answered Ahimelech, and he lies. Now, David is against lying, okay? I mean, it's one of the top ten, right? Thou shalt not fill in the blank. Come on, thou shalt not lie. There you go. All right, we all got that one. He knows this is the law. In fact, get this, David at this particular time, could walk over to the Ark of the Covenant that housed the original Ten Commandments. The tablets are in there. So, I mean, he's standing just a few feet away from the actual law that God gave down. He's in the presence of the original version, first edition of Thou Shalt Not Lie. He's a Jew. He's a man who loves God, writes about God. He's against lying, but David lies. How many of us know what's right, know what's wrong, and yet we completely blow through that stop sign time and time again? Why is he lying? Because he's afraid. And when you're afraid or angry and you're abandoned, when you're lonely, when you feel isolated, so much for the ways of God. And here's what he said. The king has sent me on a private manner, David said. He told me not to tell anyone why I am here. 
I have told my men where to meet me later. So he lies. He says, the reason I'm here by myself, shh, is I'm on a secret mission. And as for my men, I have men. Don't worry, I have men. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. This is pathetic. Like, is he really going to convince anybody with this? It was just so lame, but he's just trying to cover for himself. He didn't have any men. He's afraid that if he tells the truth, Ahimelech isn't going to help him. And that lie that he told there would cost not David. That lie would end up costing Ahimelech, his entire family, their lives. Story continues. Now, what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. So now David's here without food. He's hungry. Ahimelech's thinking, this is just weird. This is just bizarre. David has anything he wants. You're here by yourself. You're hungry? The king's son-in-law, the captain of the king's bodyguard shows up without any food because he's on a secret mission from the king and his men are hiding somewhere? It just doesn't add up. We don't have any regular bread, the priest replied, but there is the holy bread, which you can have if your young men have not slept with any women recently. Of course, that's the prerequisite. Let me explain that real quick. Every Sabbath, the priest would bake very fresh bread, and they would put it on the altar before the Lord. And I know this sounds strange to us, but that was their way of honoring God with fresh bread. Linda could probably relate. Like, come on, baking, you know, honoring God. Lo and behold, the next day, they would come back, and God had not eaten any of the bread. It was still there. Uh, but God accepted their sacrifice. And so they would take the fresh bread, and the priest would keep it, and the priest would eat it, but it was considered consecrated. It was holy. It was set apart, which meant you had to be ceremonially clean to eat the bread. So any activity that would render you ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law meant you could not take part in eating that bread. So the priest ended up giving David the consecrated bread. So now David has not only lied about why he's there, he's lied in order to be fed, which if you were here last week or if you heard the first part of this series, you have to begin to wonder what happened to in you I put my trust, my hope is in you all day long. In you I put my trust, my hope is in you all day long. What happened to that version of David? Where did he go? That, God, you are my refuge and I run to you in time of trouble. What happened to that version of David? Now the story starts to get really intense. 1 Samuel 21.8, David asked Ahimelech, do you have a spear or a sword? The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. Okay, this is when Ahimelech really gets a big clue. Something's off. Like, okay, wait a minute. You're the most famous warrior in the nation. You show up by yourself. You look like you haven't slept in days. You don't have any food. You don't even have a weapon. What is going on? And now this is when something that's so incredible happens. It just blows the mind. This is when we need some, like, background music as you read the scripture. And this is when those, like, dramatized versions would, like, build, this, build the intense music in the background. Uh, because this is incredible. This is when somebody kind of needs to tease this out in some kind of movie because this is just amazing. David is virtually transported back in time to the very event God used to catapult him into fame. To that moment when God raised him up as the future leader of Israel. This is the wake-up call moment for David. This is the what in the world am I thinking moment. Why am I thinking this way? Why am I doing this? Why am I even considering these options? David should have come to his senses right now. This is his moment. This was the moment when his eyes should have been opened. He's asking for a spear. He's asking for a sword. And check this out. 1 Samuel 21, 9. I only have the sword of Goliath the Philistine whom you killed in the valley of Elah, the priest replied. 
It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Take that if you want it, for there's nothing else here. You want to talk about a moment. I mean, David should have just been like, what am I doing? I mean, this is a, can you imagine the drama here? I need a sword, I need a spear, I need any kind of weapon, and the only weapon that's here is the weapon. The weapon you used to behead a giant the day you became the David that we all know and love and fear. The Bible tells us that when David beheaded Goliath that he kept the sword as a souvenir. Who wouldn't, right? <laughs> Come on, I'm keeping that. Okay, this giant sword, he put it in his tent, but later out of gratitude to God, he took the sword of Goliath, he dedicated it to God, he consecrated it, gave it to the high priest, and basically it was a way of saying, God, I recognize that I did not deliver myself with this weapon. You delivered me, so I want to give it back to you as a reminder that I need to depend on you. And so he gave that to the priests. So there was so much emotion, so much significance to the sword of Goliath for David, and suddenly David is reminded of the afternoon that he did the unthinkable. Can you imagine that he brings out that sword and all of these memories come flooding back to him that afternoon that he wandered down into the Valley of Elah all by himself as a shepherd boy with nothing but a sling. Thousands of men lined up on both sides of the valley and he stood there in front of a giant. What happened to that clear-eyed Vision is in front of him, courageous, God-fearing shepherd boy who looked at a giant, a battle-hardened warrior, and said this, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. Then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here, will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. What happened to that kid? What happened to that 15-year-old with the perfect mindset, who knew what he was doing, who knew who his God was, and knew that as long as he stayed true and walked forward with God at his side, he could not lose? Where is that faith? What happened to the boy that ran toward danger as opposed to away from it? Where did the confidence in God go? And the answer is fear, anger, and loneliness. We know this. These three giants have the potential to cause all of us to forget the defeated giants in our past. These three giants have the potential to undermine our faith in God based on what God has done in the past. And here's what I want to remind you of this morning. Never let the giants you face in the present cause you to forget the giants God has delivered you from in the past. Never let the giants you face in the present cause you to forget the giants God has delivered you from in the past. And David gets this extraordinary reminder as this sword is presented to him. He's shown a visual aid, okay, uh, to remind him of God's faithfulness and God's power, and he misses it, or he ignores it. The priest tells him that the sword is wrapped in a cloth beyond the ephod. The ephod was the garment that the priests wore when they did their priestly duties, if you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. So he brings out the sword, all the memories, all the drama, and surely at this point Ahimelech is thinking, none of this makes sense to me. What is really going on here? But he's not going to challenge David. And this would be a decision that David would regret for the rest of his life, and it would become, like all of our decisions do, it would become a permanent part of the story of David's life, and it's not a good chapter. 
David takes the sword and literally takes matters into his own hands. He lies, then he runs away from crazy King Saul. And get this, this is amazing to me. With a sword that was last wielded by a warrior who was defeated by a 15-year-old boy, he should have seen it, he should have remembered, it was just too much to miss. A flawed weapon, a flawed response, and as we're about to see, a disastrous outcome. But this is kind of where our stories intersect with David's, isn't it? We can relate. We can identify. I mean, there we are, right there. When we need God most, often we are least likely to lean in his direction. When we need God most, we are often tempted to run away rather than run toward. We choose things that have never worked before and didn't get us where we are and then almost always lead to regret. And it's so interesting because you've seen this in other people, right? You can point out these moments. We could see this in other people so easily where they're walking down a destructive path because of angry or isolation or rejection or those things. And that fear is driving them. And you have friends right now that are making terrible decisions in their lives based on anger, based on fear, based on a sense of being abandoned. And you see it in them, and you're thinking to yourself, you're just going to make it more complicated. It's not going to get better. You're just going to create more regret. And it's so easy to see this in other people. But it's almost impossible to see this in the mirror. And here's why. Because you've convinced yourself, like I convinced myself, like we all do, that my situation is different. When you're in it, it feels different. You don't understand. That's what David thought. That's what David thought. He thought that we could think, if God were with me, if God were really with me, this wouldn't be happening to me. And here's one of the things that I've learned through the years as a Christian, as a Jesus follower. Here's something that perhaps maybe you've all experienced. Maybe you just didn't have the words for it. It's so easy. It is so easy to trust God when we have nothing to trust him with and nothing to trust him for. It's so easy in the early days, right, when there's nothing to trust God with, when you're young and you say, God, I want to know your will for my life. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll surrender my life. You go to summer camp. You know, you come forward at a church altar. You throw your stick in the fire. You write God a letter. You get that first Bible, whatever it looks like at camp that year. And you say, God, I want to give you all of my life. And God's going, well, it's not a lot to give yet, to be honest, okay? (laughs) I mean, you're 12. You got the stuff in your room, you know, maybe you're 16. It's not even your car, but yeah, I'll take it. God, I surrender my life to you. And here's the thing, that's that's kind of tongue-in-cheek because God is absolutely responding to any moment when we surrender. But at that age, it's a little bit easier than somebody who's maybe at that 40 years old, 45 years old, you've got a few kids at home, you've got a job in here, you got all this other stuff, and you're trying to navigate all these decisions, and the weight of those decisions mounts more and more and more, and now all of a sudden, it's a little bit more difficult to get to that place of yielding, which is why it's so important, and parents, I've said this statistic before, and I've talked about it, but the numbers like 75, 80% of people who don't make a faith decision by the time they are 18 years old never will. They never will. It's so important that we lay that foundation of faith when they are children, when they are teenagers. We teach them what it means to follow Jesus. We teach them what it means to trust God with what you have now because then you're building on a solid foundation. When they get to that 40-year-old, 45-year-old mark, they have history to look back on. So important. 
The point is it's easy to trust God when we have very little to trust him with and nothing to trust him for. When things are going great, how difficult is it to sing these songs that we sang this morning? When things are going great, it's easy. When things are going great, how difficult is it to show up and serve? When things are going great, how difficult is it to pray prayers and trust God and pray for friends that are going through difficult times? It's easy to trust God when we have nothing to trust him with and nothing to trust him for, but it's harder to trust him when the things that we value start to slip away. When the things that we value are, are taken away from us. When the stakes are higher, it's even more critical that we do. So David takes Goliath's sword, and then just to show you where this goes, and again, it's easy to be critical of David now. We all have our version of this. Get this. David takes Goliath's sword, right? He knows he has to leave the country. Guess where he goes? Goes to the land of the Philistines. That's a good move. Well done, David. To show up in the land of the Philistines with Goliath's sword. Not only that, it gets worse. You think that was a bad call? He goes to the city of Gath. Guess who was from Gath? Goliath goes to his hometown. This boy has got some issues. It's like, and that's, that's why you should believe this actually happened, because nobody could make this up. It's so ridiculous. What is he doing? But he's panicking, he's afraid, and so he goes to the Philistines, he goes to the leader at the time, he says, I want to join your army, I want to fight for you against my own people, and they're not buying it. They're like, there's no way, you're David, everybody, they think he's on a secret mission. <laughs> so David maybe was telling the truth. Uh, you're, you're David, everybody knows you, you slew Goliath, don't tell us you're not, you're carrying his sword. And then David becomes a little afraid, like, oh, oh maybe I misjudged. <laughs> you think? Uh, he's surrounded by his enemies, so what does he do? He pretends like he's insane. Literally, he starts scratching with his nails on wood. He starts slobbering all over himself. It's in the Bible, 1 Samuel 21. Read about it. He starts slobbering all over himself, and the king is like, okay, I have enough fools in my court as it is. Get this guy out of here. <laughs> what kind of court did he keep? Uh, so David flees the Philistines, and he goes and he lives in a cave because he doesn't know what to do, and he feels abandoned, and he's angry, and he's alone. And then finally, 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 he comes to his senses. And he goes back to his country, and he finds another prophet, and he says, I have messed up big time. And I want to know what God's will is for me. I don't know the Lord's will. Would you seek the Lord on my behalf? Would you give me and provide for me the counsel of God? But the problem is the damage is done. He's made the mistake. When David was with Ahimelech looking for bread and looking for a weapon, there was someone else there at, at, uh, at Nob. And uh, it was a guy named Doeg. And Doeg was actually the chief herdsman for King Saul. Uh, he was in charge of all of the king's herds, all of his livestock. And he saw David there, and he overheard the conversations somewhat, and he got it wrong. And so he got just enough information to be confused. <laughs> You've never overheard a conversation like that, have you? Just enough to give you the wrong impression. And so it makes things look really bad for Ahimelech. He goes to King Saul, and he says, King, I have located David. I know where he is. I went to Ahimelech, and he went to Ahimelech for advice. And I hate to be the one to tell you this, but the chief priest has sided with your enemy, David. And here's how the conversation went. Doeg tells King Saul, Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. That is, David showed up, and Ahimelech went to the Lord to give advice for David. He also gave him provisions, and King Saul, I hate to tell you this too, but he gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. In other words, he fed him, and he armed your enemy. And the king was furious. 
Verse 22, 11, King Saul immediately sent for Ahimelech and all his family who served as priests at Nob. And Saul accuses them, why have you conspired against me, you and this son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him? In other words, you're in on this, why would you side against me? My son's against me, my daughter's against me, my family's against me, and now the chief priest is against me too? So that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. But Ahimelech's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. What's going on here? And then we see this story in, in chapter 22. Why have you and this son of Jesse conspired against me, Saul demanded? Why did you give him food and a sword? Why have you consulted God for him? Why have you encouraged him to kill me as he is trying to do this very day? Uh, but Sir Ahimelech replied, is anyone among all your servants as faithful as David? Your son-in-law? Like, he has no context for this. He has no clue what's going on. He thinks he's still the chief of his bodyguard. Why, he is the captain of your bodyguard and a highly honored member of your household. This was certainly not the first time I had consulted God for him. May the king not accuse me and my family in this matter, for I knew nothing at all of any plot against you. And then King Saul's reply, you will surely die, Ahimelech, along with your entire family, the king shouted. And he ordered his bodyguards, kill these priests of the Lord, for they are allies and conspirators with David. They knew he was running away from me, but they didn't tell me. But Saul's men refused to kill the Lord's priest. Ooh, plot twist. And so they said, we, we're not going to do it. But Doeg, the chief herdsman, sees this as an opportunity for him to get in good with the king, raises his hand, says, hey, if they won't, I will. And Doeg slaughters 85 priests. But Saul's not finished. He says, now I want you to go to Nob, and you are to kill every man, every woman, every child, and every infant. Very few people escaped the slaughter. One of the survivors was one of Ahimelech's sons. And he flees to where David is hiding, falls down at his feet, and tells David the entire story. And David is broken. And the text says, he says this, he said, I, David says, I am responsible for the death of your entire family. The weight of it is all crashing down on him. David was responsible for the death of an entire village because taking matters into our own hands, sometimes it may feel good, but it just doesn't turn out good. We're going to pick up the story of David next time, but I want to ask you two or three questions real quick as we think about how this intersects with our lives. Because this is common to all of us. There's going to be a time in all of our lives when our anger pushes us to do things we know we shouldn't do, our sense of isolation and loneliness. Suddenly we're thinking about things that we would tell other people and have no business doing that somehow become live options now for us because these emotions are so powerful. And here's the question. What is your loneliness, anger, or fear causing you to consider that you've never considered before? Was it, what is it causing you to bring up as an option, relationally, financially, physically, some sort of risk you would never take before? Maybe the idea of re-embracing an old habit that you spent hours and hours or days or weeks or possibly years and thousands of dollars overcoming, and suddenly you find yourself rethinking about embracing that habit again. What is your loneliness, anger, or fear causing you to consider that you've never considered before? And have you ever seen that actually work out for anybody? How about this question? Who is your loneliness, anger, or fear causing you to consider that you shouldn't consider? 
never called him back, but you're thinking about calling him back now. You didn't return that call, but you're thinking about calling her back now. She's made it very obvious. He's made it very obvious that there's potential for a relationship, but you've ignored it and ignored it and ignored it. But because of what's going on at home, because of what's going on financially, because of what's going on in some other area of your life, suddenly that's now a live option for you. And you know, you know, you know you have no business even opening a door. And here's the wake-up call question. This is the question that David completely missed, and we kind of get it. He was 22 years old, by himself, but this was the wake-up call question I hope will be your wake-up call. Who besides you do your considerations, do your options put at risk? Who besides you do these options that were never options before, but suddenly now they're live options in your life, who do these options put at risk besides you? And I already know the answer to the question for you. The answer is the people you love the most and the people who love you the most. Who else is at risk? Who else's future hangs in the balance of your personal decision to give in to the impulse caused by anger, abandonment, or fear? One last question. What advice would you give to someone who is you? What would you tell yourself? And isn't it true when it's someone else, it's so clear, and when it's you, you think you're an exception to the rule? Did you know you're not an exception to the rule? Uh, you're a very unique person, but your experience is not unique. You're a very special person, but your experience is not special. You're a one-of-a-kind person, but your experience is not one-of-a-kind. These are well-worn paths, dating all the way back to David and even before him. You're not alone. Now, the interesting thing about this question is that we know the advice that David would give us. Not 22-year-old David, because he was in the middle of chaos, Grown-up King David would later give this advice. He wrote it in his journal for us. We call it the Psalms. Here's what he would write in Psalm 9. The Lord is a shelter for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, O Lord, do not abandon those who search for you. The Lord is a shelter. He's a refuge. Not a chemical, not alcohol, not an affair, not another person, not a lot of debt, not a new car, not a new house, not something else that you can buy. The Lord is a refuge. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold. And this is a word that we don't get because we don't understand strongholds. We don't live in that time. A stronghold was a place that you would flee to in times of war. They would leave the city and they would go out to the stronghold because it was better fortified than the city in which they lived. A stronghold in times of trouble, the place you can run to, the place you go when everything is collapsing around you. God is the place you run to. God is the relationship you run to when you feel oppressed, when there's times of trouble in your life. David would say, I took refuge in my ability to control outcomes, and the outcome was a disaster. He would write, those who know, those who know your name, trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. I thought I had been forsaken, David would say, but I was mistaken. I thought I had been forsaken. I thought this wouldn't be happening to me if God was with me. I felt forsaken, but now that I look back, I realized I wasn't. God had not abandoned me. God was with me. I felt left alone, but I was mistaken. You know what he would tell you? He would say, don't make that mistake. Don't miss it. And now I want you to think about this. This is so powerful. Uh, a thousand years after this event, a thousand years later, David's most famous descendant, who was actually born in the city of David, Jesus, would gaze into the eyes of some frightened, angry, abandoned, overtaxed Israelites 
And he would say this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A thousand years later, instead of saying that the Lord is a refuge like David did, Jesus says, come to me. I'm the refuge. Take my perspective, my yoke, my worldview. Learn from me, and you'll get the soul rest that you desperately need right now. I haven't left you, and I never will. You may feel abandoned, but you're not. You may feel afraid, but you don't need to. You may be angry, but I want to help you. Whenever you feel like you're forsaken, you are mistaken. God is with you. That's what David would tell us. Jesus would say, I am with you. David would say, don't run, don't run, don't run. Instead, remember. Remember the giants God has dealt with in your past. Remember the victories that he has brought you before because it's the same God who is with you now that was with you then. When Ahimelech brought out the sword of Goliath, that's when I should have remembered. Remembered that the Lord is a shelter for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. But it's even better than that. Guys, he is your refuge. He is your stronghold. And he will never leave you. Let's pray. God, there are times, seasons of our lives where the attack is stronger than others. Where we feel like there's no way out, where we feel like we've lost control, where we feel like we can't see through to the other side. And all of that may be true. We have lost control. There is no way out, and we can't see our way through to the other side. But God, we thank you in those times. We can hide in the shelter of your wings. We can run to the stronghold that is our relationship with you, and you do see the way out. You do have a way through to the other side. You make a way where there seems to be no way. And God, we can trust in you. And I pray, God, that you would Forgive us for those times where we've took matters into our own hands and tried to figure things out on our own and we've, we've created more problems than we've solved and we've made things more complicated than they had to be and we've hurt people that didn't even need to be involved in the process and God, we've made those mistakes time and time again in our lives. And God, I pray today that you would help us as we move forward. Some of us in this room, we are in this place where we're feeling angry or afraid, or isolated, and we're, we're at risk of making some really poor decisions in our lives, and I want to pray for them today, that God, as they sit here in this room, and they cry out to you and say, God, be my refuge, see me through, God, would you strengthen them today? Strengthen them emotionally, strengthen them physically, strengthen them spiritually, and God, let them make the right decision to find their refuge in you, not in something else that we can run to, but in you. Lord, I pray for the battles we're going to face in the future because, God, there are many over the rest of our lives we're going to face this situation again. And, Lord, when we do, I pray that you would help us to look back on this story. Holy Spirit, would you bring this to mind in those moments and let us learn from the mistake that David made here. And, God, I pray that you would help us 
to stand strong in the face of the enemy, to not back down, to not run away, to not go our own direction. And God, if you lead us away, if you lead us down a path that goes a different direction, awesome. But God, don't let me run away from a fight. Don't let me run away from an enemy just because I'm afraid. Let me trust in you. Let all of us place our trust wholeheartedly in you. Lord, I pray that as we do, we would come to you and we would find rest for our souls. God, for those that are struggling today, for those that are feeling that inner turmoil, they're churning inside, God, would you help them to find rest for their souls in you today? Let all of us walk out of this room with that ah, moment as you have given us that, that breath, that Sabbath, that Selah moment as we've spent time with you. God, equip us to fight the fights in front of us. Equip us to run to the battlefield and to do whatever you ask us to do, God. We want to give you the glory. God, be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.